Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly discussion show all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, I'll be your host for the day and I'm joined this afternoon by Sir Martin Sorrell. Sir Martin is the advertising mogul who took a small company called Wire and Plastic Products, they used to make shopping baskets back in the day, and transformed it into the biggest advertising company in the world. After leaving WPP in 2018, Sir Martin set up S4 Capital, a new data-driven, obsessively futuristic marketing company for the modern age. It's already worth more than £2 billion and, in his own words, has left the traditional agencies looking like dinosaurs. In a brilliant episode of the podcast, Sir Martin talks about his role as the third Saatchi brother, about plans for retirement, spoiler, he doesn't really have any, and about how his grandfather cut off a Cossack's arm at the age of 10. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about the Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels, not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you... Now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. So, Martin, thanks very much for joining us on this episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast. The only reason I responded to you, Joseph, because you have the name Bullmore. You see, and Jeremy Bullmore, who, as I find out now, is, is distantly related to you. Yeah. He's such an exceptional man that I thought I had to do his, his relation proud. So here we go. Well, that's good. And they say nepotism doesn't exist in the creative industries anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it does on this particular occasion, it exists. Amazing. Well, so listen, this is, as I explained, this is all about entrepreneurs and founders. But I was interested yeah. to hear you say recently that you think the word entrepreneurs is misused or perhaps overused. What does the word mean to you? Risk taker. I mean, right. That's what it means. So you don't take a risk with other people's money, you take a risk with your own people's money. And I think that's the fundamental point. So, Absolutely. you know, for example, uh, I, I always found it slightly strange that when one, one you know, at WPP, for example, uh, the, the structure that we built there was very much about putting money where your mouth was mm. or is and investing in the company for the long term, not not... You know, Warren Buffett always used to say or has said, you wouldn't give an institution a call on your stock at zero cost. So why do you give management through options a call on the stock? You know, it's heads I win, tells you lose. And, you know, I fundamentally believe that you should invest in your own company. I mean, that comes from my father. I think his view was that portfolio management was a mugs game. It was like betting at the casino. And what you should do is invest in the company you know best, i.e. the company that you work in. So unifying ownership and control, too many companies have a split between ownership and control where the managers who run the company 
have little or anything at stake. And in fact, you know, built into the governance system, for example, non-executive directors, I think in the UK are discouraged from having stock because if they have mm. stock, they wouldn't be independent. I mean, I think that's a nonsense. I think having I, I, the only qualification I would make having a long-term interest, not, you know, playing ducks and drakes with the stock, you know, buying it when it goes down and selling it when it's high, but holding the holding the stock over the long term, like we did at WPP, I mean, it's for 33 years, I still hold my shares in WPP, and I, I never sold any. I had a, a, a settlement, divorce settlement to, to impart, and that was the only sale that I ever made. There were one or two for tax reasons, but actually, I actually invested in the company by paying the tax and holding the stock in, in many cases. So I think building a long-term interest in the company and unifying ownership and control yeah. is related to your question around the word entrepreneur. It's interesting you mentioned in that answer the wisdom of your father. And I've noticed you kind of invoke him quite a lot and, and the, the epithets he said. Does he loom large now in your in your life? Has he been a big inspiration to you? Well, he died in 1989, just after we, when I was at WPP and we, we acquired uh, Ogilvy. And uh, he died on July the 1st, 1989. So he hasn't been around for uh, an awfully long time. Mm. But um, yes, no, he, he does live large because you know, he was a big influence on me. He, he was the son of a, an immigrant uh, who came here, uh, we think, from Kiev in the Ukraine in 1899, not speaking a word of English, in a wedding certificate that, that I found that my grandparents uh, had crosses on both for my grandmother and grandfather wow. and for the four witnesses. So they came here with nothing. My father grew up in the East End, one of six, uh, had to leave school at the age of 13 because he had to become part of the income-producing people in the family. You know, you, you, you had to leave at 13 because you had to work and make money for the family. I think he, he messed about with the legal profession, unqualified legal profession early on, and then became a salesman in a radio and television store and, and rose to become the chief executive or managing director of what became the largest radio and TV chain in the UK, 750 stores, a subsidiary of an industrial holding company called Firth Cleveland. But, you know, my, my, I have two regrets in relation to him. One is that we never went into business together. We did try, but failed. Right. Uh, despite having a very, very close relationship, we didn't do that. And the second, that he didn't have his own business. I think it was, he was an immensely, immensely talented man. He could play the violin. He could quote great chunks of Shakespeare or the Talmud. He had a phenomenal memory. I mean, for somebody who had no formal education past the age of 13, he was incredible. And I just think he never really fulfilled his promise. And what he did for me was to try and give me the opportunities that he didn't have. I went to a good school. I went to a good university. I went to good postgraduate school. So I, I had the benefit of the things that he lacked. And so I owe him I owe him an awful lot, and my mother too, of course, who, who, who looked. I was a spoilt only child. I had a brother who died uh, at birth a year before I was born, so I think I was the last chance to live. Yeah. And um, yeah, I know them both uh, an awful lot, but my father was, uh, you know, until his dying day, I used to talk to him before the, the era of mobile phones six, seven, eight times a day in the teeth of the hostile takeovers for JWT and Ogilvy, as they were called. They weren't hostile, really, but 
uh, when you're hostile to the CEOs involved. You know, I used to talk to him incessantly. What were you like as a young man growing up? Were you particularly ambitious? I, I can imagine you must have been. No, I, I don't think so. I, I think my, my mother, like all Jewish mothers in northwest London in the ghetto of Golders Green and Henley's Corner, I was born at Henley's Corner and Queensborough Court, um, like all Jewish mothers, they wanted their sons to succeed. I was an only one, spoiled only one. And so she was very pushy in that way. They wanted me to go to good schools and university, and they just wanted the best for me. And I think they were wonderful parents. I think the fact my mother had lost my brother, whose name was Michael, you know, early on, I, I really, to this day, don't really know what what happened. Uh, I think that, you know, put more pressure on my parents, you know, in relation to myself. Uh, but, you know, I owe them everything. So, uh, and they sacrificed an awful lot. I didn't... Sometimes in the descriptions you read uh, that I came from a wealthy family. I mean, I came from a family that was, I would say, comfortable, but it wasn't, it wasn't wealthy. My father worked like a dog. He, seven days a week, retailers, Saturday and Sunday. Mm. We lived in northwest London, and the office was in Putney, uh, southwest London. And he used to have to travel across London uh, every single day and on a Saturday. And on Sunday, I would go visiting stores with him because he was, you know, really interesting, actually. He was, he, he had no architectural or design background or training, but he, you know, it, the stores he liked to design himself. He would set, he did this flush-fronted store. It uh, sounds, sounds bizarre to talk about it today, but it was a, a store with, instead of a, a walk-in corridor with windows on either side, you had a flush front. And he designed that himself and designed the branding of uh, the stores, Civic stores, J&M Stone, Broadmead. I mean, he was, um, he was phenomenal given his lack of formal education and the fact that he had a music scholarship to the Royal School of Music. Wow. He could quote Shakespeare and the Talmud in great chunks. I mean, not just the odd line here or there or the odd, odd phrase. I'm talking about five, six, seven, eight minutes of it. And, uh, wow. you know, I used to go... English-speaking union competition with Simon Sharma every year from Haberdasher's school. And you used to have to learn a piece. You know, they give you a piece of prose to read. That was one part of it. And then the second part of it was you had to, to, to recite a set speech. And my dad would train me, you know, on King Henry V or Richard III or Julius Caesar, or as you like it, on a night's dream or whatever it is. And I would always funfer. I would always, every year, I would, uh, you know, make a mistake or two. I would never win it. I might do reasonably well, but I would never win the competition or get near the top because I always made a mistake. My dad, on the other hand, was amazing. To his dying day, he could recite, and I'm saying big chunks. So I, I was very fortunate. I had, you know, parents who were very focused, uh, very family orientated, and um, I benefited enormously from that. So he was a big figure in my life and um, never really replaced. Uh, there was a lawyer in New York called Phil Reese, senior partner of a firm that specialized in advertising called Davidson Gilbert, and he became you know, a quasi figure like my dad. And I had a, a very close relationship with him. He died in the about 2002, 2003, also of cancer, but um, you know, Phil was, was a sort of surrogate, if you like, for that. But uh, my dad was really a big figure. 
So how did you get involved in advertising then? What was your way into this world? By accident, I was working for James Gulliver, who was uh, an entrepreneur who had built, uh, well, he'd run Fine Fair for Garfield Western, for ABF Foods or AB Foods. And he branched out on his own and started a thing called, uh, it was called Oriole Foods with um, Alistair Grant and David Webster, his two associates. And, um, you know, I, I applied for a job to be, it was called his personal financial advisor because he made some money out of selling Oriole Foods to RCA Corporation. Don't ask me why RCA Corporation bought Oriole Foods, but they did, you know, food and wholesaler and retailer. And James made a, 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 what was then a fair bit of money and he wanted to invest it. And I was supposed to help him invest it. Uh, I didn't really. I was just his gopher. I just, you know, held his bag, his tortoise, as, as they call it. And um, anyway, one of the investments he made was in an advertising agency called Garland Compton, which had been reversed into a shell company, the Birmingham Crematorium, would you believe? It was like a little shell company. It was crematorium. It was owned uh, by Pat Matthews, who was a Jim Slater lookalike. Uh, First National Finance Corporation, Percy Matthews, Pat Matthews controlled it. They reversed Garland Compton in. And Ken Gill, who was the chairman of Car Garland Compton, a close friend of James Gulliver, said to James, you know, I need uh, a better creative uh, input for the agency. So they bought, they rever uh, the Saatchi brothers re reversed their agency Saatchi and Saatchi into Garland Compton. It became Saatchi and Saatchi Garland Compton or Saatchi and Saatchi Compton, the public company. So they reversed it. Interestingly, James, who was a retailer, in the structure of the deal, the earnings per share shot up because Garland Compton acquired Saatchi's on a, on a low multiple of earnings. But because Sarge's had negative net assets, they had intangibles and negative assets, the assets per share shrank to almost nothing, maybe even minus nothing. And James couldn't understand that. Being a retailer, you know, he loved retail, freehold property and freehold assets. But when he saw this, he decided to sell his shares and he had about, I think, 10% of the agency. That would have been a huge fortune yeah. with the benefit of, uh, you know, 2020 hindsight. But as a result of that, I started to do some consulting work with James for Morris and Charles, and Morris was looking for a CFO, and he, he used to see, um, you know, you're, in, you're, you're a journalist, they used to see the CFOs from all the big uh, media companies in Fleet Street, you know, before lunchtime, because if you saw them after lunchtime, it was a little bit <laughs> precarious, and, um, and Morris said to the headhunter, his name was Brian Burwash at Goddard K. Rogers, you know, why is it I can't get a decent CFO? And, and Brian said to him, well, what sort of person would you like? Well, somebody like Martin, you know, he, he comes in here one day a week and does some consulting work. And Brian said, well, have you asked him whether he's interested? And, and Morris said, no. I said, well, I'll go and ask him. So Brian asked me and I said, yes. Uh, and it was really interesting. We had a, it was a wonderful time. I mean, Sarge is yeah. in, the, in the 70s. You know, I went there in 75 and left there. 75, 76, and left there in 85. I uh, had nine years there in all, and it was superb. I mean, Tim Bell, Jeremy Sinclair, Bill Muirhead, Morris and Charles. I mean, a, a phenomenal group of people um, and very unusual group of people. And it was, those were brilliant times. I mean, yeah. one of the best management groups that I've ever seen. 
you were sometimes referred to as the third brother in this Saatchi and Saatchi setup. Yes, I mean, but that, but that was, a, you know, figment. There were only two brothers, really. <laughs> there was actually only one brother. There was Charles. <laughs> I mean, Charles, Charles would, would regale Morris with what we used to call the gutter speech. You know, Charles would say, if it wasn't for me, Morris, you wouldn't be anywhere. You know, I, I dragged you out of the gutter. Because Morris had got, a, I think, first-class honours from the London School of Economics. And mm. Charles had left, uh, left school in mysterious circumstances <laughs> at an early age. No, uh, Tim Bell was outstanding, uh, you know, the best account man uh, that you could ever come across. Bill Muirhead was outstanding, Jeremy Sinclair. I mean, it was a superb group of people. And Morris and Charles were, you know, really on a high. British Airways, the Conservative Party. I mean, it was um, great times. We had great fun and nothing was impossible. Yeah, uh, And it was really, really a, a, a great era, great era. Never... I don't think it's be, ever been reproduced. I'm, you know, I mean, obviously, I haven't had access to all the teams. I mean, we have a wonderful team at S4, and I think in their way, they're equally good, but in a different age. But, you know, every week, campaign <laughs> would carry a headline saying, Sarge's wins another yeah. million pounds. And in those days, that was a lot of, a lot of money. To the extent that the, the Americans who ran Compton, who we, which we eventually bought, Compton Advertising, which owned originally, I think they owned about 20% of Saatchi and Saatchi Garland Compton or Saatchi Saatchi Compton, the, the public company. And we took them out of the public company and put them into a subsidiary, which is another very, very long story. But those Americans believe that Charles and Morris, Charles in particular, owned Campaign Magazine because they couldn't fathom how it was that Charles got a headline every week, literally every Thursday morning, that, you know, the Campaign magazine was distributed around Charlotte Street, and the headline was always "Saatchi wins another million, wow. two million account." So, great fun. It was great fun. And then, of course, you you struck out on your own. How did you? If you were having such a good time, I wonder if it was difficult to make that decision to to break off. No, it wasn't. I mean, you never got credit. I mean, one thing about Saatchi is it was fine as long as you didn't get any external credit for it. And uh, there are long stories about that, which I won't bore you with, but. You know, basically, Morris and Charles, you know, on every press release, it was a spokesman for Saatchi and Saatchi said, and Morris would say to me, well, you know, it's rather like Procter & Gamble. You never hear anybody at Procter & Gamble being quoted. It's always a spokesman for P&G. I said, well, the difference, Morris, is that Mr. Procter and Mr. Gamble are dead. <laughs> and, you know, that was, it was, so it was always very much around them. And that was an interesting uh, example of that with a campaign magazine article on CFOs that, that, um, Bernard Barnett, who was the editor of Campaign, ran, and, and, and Charles was a little bit upset about that. But the major thing was that my dad, coming back to him, had said, look, find an industry that you enjoy. Find a company within that industry that you enjoy for the same reason, that's fun and you find it interesting and, you know, you have a shot of, of, of building something. And then if at the age of 40, I think he chose the age of 40, in his discussions with me, if at the age of 40 you think you should branch out on your own, have a go. And mm. um, that's what I did. You know, when I was 40, it was 1985, I decided, you know, I, I borrowed some money against my, my Saatchi stock, £250,000, and with a, with a partner, Preston Rabel, who was a stockbroker, we found this wire and plastic products company, which was a small quoted shell company, a million pounds, no debt. 
small manufacturing company. Uh, we, we wanted a management that was um, active but not senile. <laughs> I think that was the prescription, no debt. And about, it had to have a cap of about a million because that way we could buy 29.9% without triggering a bid. And uh, I bought 16%, I think it was. Preston had about 14%. And the rest is history. And we built WPP from or Warren Plastic Products from that base. But the, the answer to your question is it was something that my dad had mapped out as a possibility. And I could have stayed at Sarge's. I enjoyed it. It was good fun. You know, there were some plus points and uh, there were plus points and there were some negatives. But by and large, you know, he'd always said to me, if you want to have a go, have a go. And I, I, it's some of the things, you know, starting WPP, starting S4, uh, you know, hasn't been easy in, in either case, but it's been very exciting and um, demanding and interesting. And, you know, when you get up in the morning, uh, which I think it is the right thing, is your heart is in your mouth. It's not a job. It's more than that. And I, I always quote Bill Shankly, you know, football's not a matter of life and death. It's more important than that. And, you know, that, the things that you do, that's why I think coming back to that ownership and control thing, I think if yeah. you, you know, if you're a real entrepreneur, it means you take risks and you take risks with your own money, not just other people's money. I mean, you might leverage with other people's money, but that's what you do. And so you are, you know, almost continuously, I'm gonna, I was going to use the phrase on edge. It's the wrong way of putting it. But what you do is front and center. And this raises all sorts of questions about balance between work and family and yeah. society you know we can talk about that but you know the most common thing is people say you're driven and you're driven mm -hmm. by wanting to build something you know people get caught up in you know share price market value compensation you know those are so that's like the scoreboard it's not the reason that you do it it's the reason you want to build something and you want to build something successfully and that that's mm -hmm. the key Sounds almost exhausting when you talk about it like that. The idea of waking up every morning on edge. No, I don't think it's exhausting. I think it's you, you know you're driven um, by you know, a desire to build something, and mm. if you found it exhausting, it wouldn't be the right thing. I mean, if you find it no. energizing, if you find it you know that it gives you energy. I mean, you often you might have doubts about some things that you're you're doing or you might be concerned about what you're doing but now i wouldn't say it's exhausting it, it's because you get energy from making progress um you know it's it's the thrill of it is that you come up with an idea from nothing and you know like two two and a bit years ago you know i, I left wpp had a clean sheet of paper what was i going to do i wasn't going to do portfolio stuff i wasn't going to um sit on the beach didn't want to do that i wanted to continue to keep myself active i think people who retire early tend to vegetate both mentally and physically mm. and i wanted to continue so uh, you know i focused on a different model growth right you know total shareholder return now is driven by top line growth primarily margins are important obviously either in the long term or immediately but the balance has shifted the, the Saatchi WPP models are different models to S4. S4 is about top-line growth with profitable margins, but the primary drive is to focus 
on the growth sectors, first party data, digital advertising content, digital media, programmatic performance, whatever it happens to be. That's the key approach. The WPP model and the Saatchi model are very much sort of market share models and much more balanced between revenue growth and margin growth. And to some extent, some people would say too orientated towards profitability and margin, and that reduces investment uh, in and creative. I, I don't agree with that, but you know, I think you know, if you have a strong business in our industry, you should be capable of making 20% margins. It, it's the weaker businesses where you can't, you can't do that. So I wouldn't say it's um, you know, exhausting. <laughs> I think yeah. it's, it's energizing, actually. Sometimes I, I'm, I'm not envious of people who are in positions like yours. But all the responsibility must sometimes get you at the small hours of the morning. <laughs> do you sleep well? Uh, yes, I do sleep well. I mean, I you know, I, I, I probably in the week don't sleep enough. But, but you know, since lockdowns, I, I've slept better than, than I did before. I used to probably survive on five to six hours. Now I survive or I, I prosper on six to seven uh, mm. on the weekends, I might, which is a bad thing to do. You, you, you might catch up a little bit. A little bit longer, but but I know I think look I, I think it, it's exciting and and you know when I was at WPP I think at its peak uh, if you included associates it was two hundred thousand people and you excluded the associates that's company was we owned less than fifty percent of but more than twenty um, if you excluded them we were about one hundred and thirty three thousand and I. You know, the 200,000, probably if there were three people in, on average in the family, that's 600,000 people. I, I, I got a kick out of that. We're now mm. at four or 3,000 people. So probably there's about 10,000 people who depend on us for their livelihood. I think that's great. And, and you know, coming back to things like purpose, you know, the part of the purpose of S4 is to provide employment, particularly during lockdowns and furloughs and COVID. So in the first nine months of this year, I'm very proud of the fact that we've increased the number of people who work at S4 organically, excluding deals, by 26%. Yeah. And by the end of this year, because of new business that we've won, BMW and some other things are coming down the pike, it'll be up at about 3,100 and then very quickly in the new year to 3,300. Yeah. So I'm proud of it, particularly in a world which is challenged by you know, the growth of technology, which I think diminishes job opportunities, let alone the impact of COVID and, and the pullback of government support systems, which will have to happen at some point in time, which will cause small and medium-sized companies in particular to, get, to go bankrupt. You, know, you do worry, obviously, about whether what you're going to do is going to be successful or unsuccessful. People will think it's a good idea or a bad idea, whatever it's to be. But that's exciting. That's not... Mm. That's not pressing. So let's talk about S4 Capital in, in a bit more depth. I'm always interested in names and why people go for certain names. Now, your this company is named after four generations of Sorrels, effectively, starting with your grandparents. Grandparents were they came. That's why. And then my parents. Then my generation, my kids, and then I, I really should rename it S5 because um, the, the grandkids as well. But it was. It was the first four generations of yeah. Soros, but originally S5. Or we could, we could exclude my grandparents on my father's <laughs> side and say it's S4. So are you conscious of 
creating a kind of Murdoch-esque dynasty. And I don't want to compare you to Rupert Murdoch. No, no, because none of my kids are in the, in, in the business and they have sought their own way. And I think they find it pretty impossible to be in the same business. I know, in answer to question, would I like them to have done that? Yeah, sure, I would have liked them to be very nice. But they've carved out their own way and in their own ways they've been very successful. And um, you know, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of them. And I, I think, you know, I tried it with my dad. You know, I said I had two regrets. One, that he didn't have his own business. Two, that, you know, I didn't. And I did try it, actually. Before I joined James Gulliver, we tried for about three months, three, six months, um, to, to do something together. And we just couldn't get it together. I you know, I, I know what it was. And, uh, you know, if I have one regret in life, that would be, that would be one of them. Or if I have many regrets in life, that, that would be one of them. But we didn't manage to work it out because you know, he had a different attitude. Maybe it was because of where he had come from and what he had done and what he hadn't done. Um, but I think, um, no, it was just not possible. So uh, this is not dynastic. This is just recording the fact that my my grandfather, my Zayda, as they call them in Yiddish, and my Bubba, as they call them in Yiddish, came off the boat, or however they got here, in 1899, um, with nothing, with zero. You know, if the point system had been applied then, I doubt whether they would have got in. My, my grandfather said, claimed to, to have lived to over 100, and he claimed that he cut off a Cossack's hand uh, with a with a saber at the age of ten. He told the story about how the Cossack put his hand over the barrier around the ghetto and he chopped it off. That's what he claimed. But he was, I think, he was prone to exaggeration. Let's put it right. That. that should be your logo: a, a severed hand. A seven <laughs> we didn't no. put that on the shield when we when we when we when we drew the shield. We should have done that. You're you're dead right. Uh, I'm interested. When I read about the foundation, the name that keeps coming up in the industry press, the word that keeps coming up is that you're proving yourself after leaving WPP and that you're seeking revenge in some way. Uh, you're a journalist. They have to have a story. No, I, no. I've said you know, we're out to prove a point, and the point we're out to prove is that we can build. Uh, a new age, new era advertising and marketing service model. It's very simple and disrupt the old because this age, this era is about continuous disruption and continuous change. McKinsey says the average life of a company is 17 years, uh, S&P 500 or FTSE 100. So on that basis, WPP, for example, has had two lives already. It's been around for 34 years or 35 years. So you know, actually, it's interesting in relation to what my dad said, you know, find an industry you enjoy, find a company you enjoy, then build, you know, your reputation there and start it. I mean, in a way, that's an old philosophy because the, the change is so violent now that, you know, another way of doing things is, you know, you start something, build it up, sell it, start another thing, build it up, sell it, start another thing, you know, go from from flower to flower, flip from flower to flower. It's a different philosophy. My father was about long-term brand building, ironically. It's interesting you talk about long-term because you, in the short term, you've been very rapidly successful. I think you started it a couple of months after leaving WPP and two years later-ish, it's worth somewhere near £2 billion. Did you have a game plan or did you just kind of dive in and just get going straight away? No, the game plan was just like, you know, WPP was about building. If you went to the 
original document around wire and plastic products. You would see the aim is to build a, a major multinational marketing services company. I think that was the phrase we used. And with this, the aim was quite clear because of the focus on growth, that the total shareholder return dynamic had moved from a mixture of revenue growth and margin to revenue growth, focus on growth. You know, in the last few years or last year or so, since about 2016, I think was the best year that we had at, at WPP. So 2017 was more of a struggle. The growth petered out on the top line, but there was growth within the portfolio. And the, the growth was in first party data, digital advertising content, and digital media. That's where the growth was. So we yeah. focused on those three things. And, and S4 is about building that new model. That is a first-party data-driven model, which uses that first-party data to create digital advertising content and deploys that 24-7 real-time mm. programmatically. So we watch what Joseph is watching, what he's reading. We try and figure out what his preferences are, and we serve an ad that we think repeals those preferences. If it doesn't work, and we see you don't buy what we're trying to sell you, we'll try and another creative route. So for Netflix, we might have one and a half million different creative executions. We probably only use about fifty to 70,000 in the course of a campaign, but we, it, we will vary the creative. So it's like running an election campaign because everything's in real time now. You, you, know, you don't have time to create a three-month TV commercial, pump it out, see what the results are, and then... It, you know, it's not a static model anymore. It's continually dynamic and changing. So that's the key. That makes me think, what would someone like Jeremy Bullmore be like if he was working for S4 Capital? Maybe his wordsmith and his, his long copy wouldn't be valued. I wish he was. <laughs> because Jeremy is very adaptable. No, and listen, he would have some very firm views. Hmm. And it would be great to have his advice again. And I, I hope that WPP are using his advice because he's a very wise man. I think he still continues to write what is the best piece of writing in our industry every year in the, in the annual report. I mean, he did it when I was there for 33 years and uh, was outstanding. And his partner, planning partner, Stephen King, who we were talking about, who sadly died a few, a few years after JWT became part of Wire and Plastic Products. Um, Stephen and Jeremy were on the board. And, mm. uh, you know, Jeremy was a, really valued advisor and i think still is so he would be a font of great wisdom um so i wish he was and he would adapt as well i mean he was very adaptable and he would see you know after all what we're doing what i just described is not a long way away from what david ogilvy described in his books on advertising in relation to what he called direct marketing one-to-one direct personalized marketing. it happened to be done by direct mail by a letter instead of a an electronic or digital communication. But it's the same principle. So when you look back now from the Sunday uplands of data, um, do, you, do, you, <laughs> do you think those old, are they, are they dinosaurs? Do you, do you think the old holding companies and the big traditional agencies, do they seem like they're stuck in another era to you? Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and are you glad that they're not trying to bite off the same, the same apple that you are? They're trying, but you know, they, they fail because they're too complicated. So I've heard you say that Accenture, that is the, the threat, the competition to you. Is that right? No, it's not the threat. It's the competition. I mean, Accenture is a $154 billion beast. 
<laughs> so, you know, we're $3 billion. They're $154 billion. We're, we're 3,000 people. They're 500,000. And I think in Accenture Interactive, which is their interactive piece, it's about 50,000. So we're a peanut or a pimple on the elephant's backside, however you want to put it. Uh, but, you know, we have a lot more scope. We are the motor torpedo boat to their aircraft carrier. And uh, I think that shows, you know, BMW, they were in the final, they didn't win. So mm. despite all their capabilities, despite all their talent, they didn't win. So it is possible for, you know, David to defeat, defeat Goliath. Yeah. The children of Israel went round the walls of Jericho, was it seven times or 13 times? I'm trying to remember what, whether it's either. However many times it was, <laughs> you just have to keep going round and round the walls of Jericho and they come tumbling down. There's a quote about you in campaign this week from Miles Young, who's one of your non-exec directors at S4 Capital. And he says... You've done your reading. You've done your reading. I have. He says, it's as if he has drunk a large potion of reinvigorating fluid. His spirit is positively youthful, like a bright-eyed but very, very wise puppy. Do you think that's a fair <laughs> characterization? Anything Miles says is fair. <laughs> so what did you put that down to? What have you been drinking, to use his analogy? I've been drinking it. No, I just think, look, we, we live in a different era. And I, th I think people have been critical that WPP, maybe fairly or unfairly, that WPP didn't adapt or not. I was running WPP, um, you know, with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. And this always happens. You always regret. You see trends. They can be globalization trends. There are two buckets, basically. Global, a geographical bucket, globalization. Mm. A technology bucket, you know, fourth industrial revolution, digital transformation, whatever it is. You, you spot those trends, you know, and I think at WPP we saw them early. You know, people forget that, you know, well, they don't forget. They conveniently forget that WPP would have a 50% share in India or a 20% share in China or a 25% share in Brazil or a 25% share in Russia. Mm. And they would forget that, you know, that we spotted, and the emphasis is we, that the role of globalization and global, we, we, built, we built massive positions. This was a small British wire basket manufacturer, okay, <laughs> in 1985. They built massive positions, mm. the advertising and marketing services business, and had billings of what, 70 billion or whatever it was. And you know, had very strong creative capabilities, public relations and public affairs capabilities, healthcare capabilities. And you know, we built a, a very strong position. Now, we saw geographical expansion. We saw technology. I mean, it was 1997. I remember being interviewed by Harvard Business Review and talking about the power of the internet. The thing that we didn't do, or the thing I didn't do, was to move as quickly as one should. I mean, when I left... WPP two years ago, I think we used to calculate what proportion of our revenues were digital. Mm. It was 40%. I noticed the company claims now that it's still 40%, so it doesn't seem to have moved much the digital needle no. in the last two to three years. So I don't know quite what's happened there, but we were going up by about 1% a year. But the answer to your question is it should have been probably 60 70 80%. I mean, Dentsu today, <laughs> I mean, I, got, I find it quite amusing. Densu today, with its revenues down 10%, mm. claimed that 52% or whatever it was of their revenues were digitally exposed. Well, 
if 52% of your, your, your revenues are digitally exposed, and that is either flat or growing, and the other 50% is in traditional, and that's going down by, you know, 15 or 20%, you know, you're in trouble. And if it's more than 50%, if it's 60 or 70%, you're still growing at that, and then you really are in trouble. So the answer to your question is, yeah, I think when one looks at those things, you spot the trends. You always don't want, you know, I see it at S4. You know, um, I think one of the interesting things that's happening at the moment, zero interest rates make, you know, investment, private equity has huge resources. I mean, there might be, private equity probably has at least a trillion dollars of dry powder of equity capital, unlevered equity capital that they can deploy. So they can lever that up another trillion, another two trillion, another three trillion, whatever it is. So they have two, three, four trillion available. And you know, the, the money, the borrowing, is costing them next to nothing. And it will cost them some money because they're highly leveraged vehicles, but, it, but they, they're prepared to take very high levels of risk. And they're building businesses just over five years because their average hold period is five years. It's not long term in my vision of it, right? Yeah. So there's huge changes taking place and private equity are pushing prices of assets up higher and higher. And, you know, what we, it's going to be really interesting over the next, I would say, two to three years. Yeah. Inequality, the, the roots of populism around inequality are going to be stimulated, in my view, even more. I mean, we're seeing fragmentation globally, the fight between the US and China, which is not going to change under President-elect Biden. It might be more multilateral in terms of U.S., more predictable mm -hmm. in terms of U.S. relationship with China. I hope they patch it up, but I'm not sure that they will. So you've got that going on. And then you've got inequality being caused by COVID because India and Brazil, for example, are much more affected. The poor countries or the poorer countries have been much more affected by COVID. So you're going to get inequality within countries being exacerbated by zero interest rates and COVID is making it more difficult for countries, yeah. the so-called developing countries, what I call the fast growth countries. So I think it's going to be a very interesting time and it's, for entrepreneurs, it's going to be very interesting because it will be very challenging because the, you know, the established forces have access to capital, like PE has access to capital, which will enable them to be very aggressive. So. Yeah. We'll see how it balances out. I think it's really interesting. And uh, in our sector, which is purely digital, yeah. focused on data and content and digital media, faster, better, cheaper is our mantra, go to market and a unitary structure. But I think we're well positioned to take advantage of it. So I won't be sleeping that much, but it won't mm. be because um, uh, you know I'm, I'm nervous. It will be okay. because there are tremendous opportunities there. It's interesting you mentioned private equity. I was speaking to a friend who works for an investment bank, and he was saying that his team, at least for now, were only really interested in companies that had a kind of founder CEO, a single kind of totemic messiah figure who people could tell. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, look I, it's an interesting observation. I would refine it a little bit. Mm. You know, there's a book that I read when I was at university called The Theory of Managerial Capitalism by Robin Maris, left-wing economist, may even have been a Marxist. Cambridge economists at that time were very, uh, Joan Robinson, uh, James Mead was 
probably more of a liberal Democrat, I guess. I don't think he was a left-wing, but he was, no, it was the days of Kahn and Caldor and Harold Wilson's left-wing economist. Anyway, Robin Maris wrote this book, Theory of Managerial Capitalism, and he talked about, I always remember it, the separation of ownership and control. It always sort of stuck in my brain. And you know, you hear it in a modern form from somebody like Jorge Lehman, Jorge Lehman at, at 3G, who, you know, he says, I don't believe in corporate governance. What I believe in is management owning a very significant share in the company and having their investment at risk. And that, in and of itself, creates a unification between ownership and control. Do you personally like companies with a the kind of Elon Musk figures or do you worry sometimes that they might turn out to be Adam Newman's from WeWork that kind of <laughs> slightly deluded he was private and uh, no look it, it, it's what I've said I said having a control structure we have a control structure at S4 if you have a lunatic in control you have a problem but do I think Google and Facebook and Amazon are better run because of their structures yes so that my answer would be, I mean, with Adam Newman, it was more about the bet that Sonsan took on it yeah. and the evaluation that he made of it. You know, it didn't go to the public market. So, no, I, I think, look, as long as you use that control for the long term, because the simple fact is the public markets are too focused on the short term. Yeah. You know, on private equity, you know, I sat on the board of a very, very, one of the most successful private equity investments I think that there's ever been for 10 years. And, and if you said to me, did that private equity firm, which is a very great firm with great people, very intelligent, did they actually alter the flow of revenues and costs in, in the business? The answer is no. What did they do? They refried the beans. They went out yeah. and they borrowed money at cheaper and cheaper rates, sucked out equity cut costs, sold off some bits, acquired some bits, but did they fundamentally strategically change the business? No. So by virtue of the fact, come back to my dad again, by virtue of the fact that there's a five-year run mm. and they've got a five-year frame of view, it's not going to be long-term in my senses. No. So the answer to your question is, as long as that the person who's in control or the people who are in control take that long-term view, which, by the way, deals with all the ESG stuff as well, because if you're focused on the long-term, you will do everything to make sure that every interest group, every stakeholder that you have to get catered to is catered for. Because if you're building it for the long-term, you're going to take into account your people, your suppliers, government, pressure groups you'll take it all into if you're doing it for the short term you won't so yeah. I, I i think the long long-term focus is that's the key and i think yeah. we overcomplicate the rest of it you wouldn't have to have the, the, the thousands of box stickers all you have to do is get people investors and the people who run the companies to take the long-term view so when we talk about long-term and, and the cycle of a business being maybe 17 years, if you see that through at S4 Capital, you'll be in your <laughs> 90s. Is there a point, Sir Martin, when you will say, now I can retire and now I'm happy to, to hang up the boots? My eldest, my eldest son said I will die in seat 1A, so that probably will be the case. 
I can't imagine you in retirement. Do you play golf? No. No, I, I, I worked for Mark McCormack and I looked after Tony Jacklin and Peter Oosterhaus and tangentially Gary Player and Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer. And I, I, I'm not a great golf fan. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't running S4 Capital? Opening the batting for England. Absolutely. Are you a batsman or a bowler? And neither, really. I, I thought I was a sort of boycottian batsman. I certainly was not flamboyant. I was not, uh, no, it was, it was hard graft, as they say. I used to grind it out. Good, good, good left arm bowler, because I, I, did, I did actually take the wicket of Barry Richards, which was an outstanding wow. achievement with, a, with, a, with an extremely good left arm leg break. Wow. Okay. What's your worst habit? Answering emails. I really wish I didn't answer everything that was sent to me. Well, I'm glad you answered me very promptly as well. Thank you for that. <laughs> What's the most impressive thing you can cook? A boiled egg. No, no, no. I, I can, I'm actually pretty good on the grill. After lockdown, mm. I learned how to grill fish and meat. I got myself a a proper fish, you know, a fish thing to grill stuff. So, but my best is a three minute, three and a half minute boiled egg. Okay. What are you most proud of in your career? Is it, is it your knighthood or is it something else? No, I think, listen, you're, you, you, you're most proud of probably of your kids at the end of the day. I mean, that's, mm. that's what uh, you're on earth for. So I'm very proud of my four kids. Um, but I would say, uh, you know, in from a career point of view, I see starting, I think what I did at, at uh, Sarches and then WPP and then, of course, S4, and we'll see what the future brings. On the other hand, what's been your biggest failure, do you think, or, or regret, perhaps? My biggest, biggest failure was clearly in 89 when we over-leveraged WPP with, uh, with Ogilvy, but uh, that's the only thing I would admit publicly to anyway. <laughs> okay. If you could learn one new skill, what would it be? Um, I'd love to speak Chinese. And I'd love to speak code as well. Those two, those two languages are key. What was the last piece of advice you gave someone? Exactly that. I was on a webinar this morning in Korea and, and the very bright reporter uh, said to me, you know, what, what, there's some young students on the Korean students, what advice have we given? I said, learn Chinese and code. She actually said that she had told her son exactly the same thing wow. uh, in relation to Chinese uh, a few days ago. What phrase or cliche would you like to banish from the earth? Um, on television programs, they say, thanks for having me on. No, thanks for having me, that, which I hate. Thanks for having me. And the other phrase is when somebody in an advertising business says, a client came to us. Mm. Well, there is no way that the client came to them. <laughs> They've been beating the door down to try and win the business. And always, I love that. You know, the client came to us and we know that they've been pulling their hair out to try and get the business. <laughs> this is a personal one for you then. What, what are the biggest tropes in advertising right now that, on the content end that you can't stand? What's overused? I think the same thing, you know, the fact that clients came to us. I mean, you know, it's not, is we, we go to clients. We, the clients don't come to us. They don't sort of pick up the phone and say, look, here's, here's something on a plate. I mean, I did have a client that, that wrote to me this morning and said, we'd love to see what S4 Capital could do for us, but that's very rare, very yeah. rare. 
If you could be one age forever, what would you choose? Now, when you say one age, do you mean one era or do you mean? I, th- I think one, yeah, one era. If you could stay, if you could freeze yourself at one point. I like this era because this era is so, so volatile and uncertain and things are shifting so rapidly. But I love this. I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't want it to be an Elizabethan era no. or whatever. I, I, I think. This is this is really exciting. I mean, if anything, yeah. I was going to ask you: Can you go, you know, f- sort of forward in time? Sure. Could you, could you be Could you be a hundred years hence? I mean, that's going to be really interesting. You know, with Elon Musk uh, establishing, you know, on his is it on SpaceX or whatever, he's he's got his rules of engagement on Mars, and there will not be the Earth's rules on on the Moon. There will be the Earth's rules on yeah. Mars. It's going to be the Musk rules. And um, I thought that was fascinating. So he, he plans to colonize Mars, yeah. but really colonize it. He's going to take it over. People like him think they might live forever. Would you, would you enjoy living forever? Well, it depends on what, on what physical state I was in, or physical and mental state. I mean, as long as you preserve some modicum of, of decency around brain and, and physique, yes. But uh, otherwise, no. What have you done recently for the first time? Um, washing up. <laughs> wow. When was that? Last night. <laughs> Last night. <laughs> <laughs> What's your most treasured possession? Um, my most treasured possession, interesting question, is the letter my father wrote to me um, in, in 1988. He died in 89. And he wrote to me in March of 1988. And the first... It was a letter of wishes, really. Um, and the first sentence was, I have noticed the change in my physical condition, and that's why he wrote the letter. Now, I do not know, and I will never know, whether he wrote that in March of 1989, because he died in July of 89, or whether he wrote it in March of 88, because he, he only told us that he was feeling something ill in January of 1989. Mm. He was... He, he was in on the beach in uh, Florida, and he noticed the muscle pain. And he there's a there's a, a muscle rub called Flodgy, and he was rubbing it in there, and it turned out to be something sadly much more serious. But the the thing that I never will know, and it's immensely sad to me that he wrote to me in March of 1988 about he wanted what he wanted me to do, mm. and he never really told us until January of '89. And by then, you know, I, I took him to the Sloan uh, Kettering in New York, who were magnificent, um, and it was just too late. And so that's my most treasured possession. And, you know, he has a lot in that uh, letter. He has a lot of wise advice. Mm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a letter I go to very frequently. Wow. That's one of the best answers I think we've ever had on that. Most people <laughs> might say a watch or something. That's pretty good. Yeah. Okay. What book has influenced you the most? I think that book that I mentioned, The Theory of Managerial Capitalism, I, you know, it's a, it's a strange thing because it's, it's quite a narrow book in a sense, but it, it, it really made an impact on me. Um, you know, and your first question is, you know, what does entrepreneur mean to you? And thinking about being an entrepreneur, I think that because I went to business school, I like things at scale. You know, if you're sitting at Harvard Business School for two years, three times a day they're saying what should the CEO do and why in the case studies you tend to think on scale 
And I've always wanted to think on scale. And so I, I think, you know, that's, uh, that's really, really the way, the reason I think the way I did. Do you have a personal motto? Well, when you, you get knighted, you know, you, you have to go to College of Heraldry and design a shield. And I don't have the severed hand on it, by the way. I, <laughs> I have a Ru- Russian bear on it for my, for my um, grandparents. Um, no, so persistence and speed. Uh, wow. speed, speed and persistence is the, uh, is the, uh, the motto. So, caleritate and persistentia. So, it's speed and persistence. Brilliant. Finally, what's your idea of happiness? Well, you know, I was thinking, thinking about that. I mean, obviously, uh, I'd like to spend more time with my kids, uh, and I'd certainly like to spend more time with my grandkids. But, you know, I think, you know, at, at Christmas or at New Year, um, I have a small house, and I think fancy in Uruguay. And, um, you know, sandwich between and Uruguay technically shouldn't exist. It's a bit like Switzerland, <laughs> sandwich between Brazil and Argentina, but really nice people, full of life and weather's good. And there's a wonderful beach and there are a couple of wonderful restaurants. It's very informal, uh, very relaxed. I go to the same restaurant every day at one thirty, sit there for about three hours and, um, and, and not have dinner. And um, it's a, a wonderful life. There's another restaurant there which is a sandbar called Caracola, which is magical. You turn up about midday or one o'clock, you, you go across the lagoon in a fisherman's boat, you sit in this hut and tents on, on a, literally on a beach until sunset. It's, um, those, are, those are wonderful days. And uh, Uruguay is a, a, a magical country. It's about 150 miles south of the Brazilian border. It's a place called Jose Ignacio, but don't tell anybody because it will spoil it. Okay, I think we've already done that. So Martin, <laughs> thank you so much. What a wonderful episode. I enjoyed it too. And give my love to Jeremy if you see him. If you haven't seen him, go and give him a big kiss. Okay, will do. Thank you very, very yeah. much. Very much. God bless. Thank you. Bye. Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com to find out more.